you would, stand with me for the reading of God's Word this morning. I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, and <clears throat> many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You may be seated. All right, let's pray. Father, what, a, what an incredible privilege it is to be your people. What an incredible honor it is to open up your word. And what an incredible blessing it is to know that your spirit is here to instruct and teach and exhort and rebuke and convict us through this word. <clears throat> and Father, we also believe that your spirit is here to bring life to dead people, to those who are lost in their sins and their trespasses. Your Holy Spirit is able to quicken them and to breathe into them new life. And we ask that all these things be done today in order that we might be brought to you in whatever way we need to be brought to you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your people. Help us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, me. Where to begin? <clears throat> like if you haven't figured that out by now, you're in big, big trouble, Jason. Um, <clears throat> let me start with a trick question. Now, when somebody says it's a trick question... You're not going to answer real quickly, or you're going to say, oh, okay, you think I'm going to answer this, but I'm going to answer this, because it's a trick question. If I told you that I could give you something that was better, or I could give you something that was the best, which would you choose? Everybody's like, oh, I'm not going to say, because, wait a minute, that is pretty tricky. Since I told you it's a trick question, you're probably not sure, okay? I remember back in 11th grade, we had a media class which media was much different in 1990 than it, than it is today. That's not that funny. In that class, we were taught that advertisers use what are called weasel words. Weasel words are just what they sound like they would be. They're deceptive, misleading words used to make consumers think that they're getting products that are superior to other products. And the most commonly used weasel word we learned was best. Best sounds like it's better than better, right? I don't want better, I want the best. But the problem was that there was no standard for determining best. No standard. It could mean best among the products we tested or even the best in our opinion. 
there were no real qualifiers for what constituted best. Better, on the other hand, was normally used in direct comparisons to other real products or services. In tests, this product performed better than that product. And that's better than best in this case. So you're like, okay, so what? Why are you telling me that? Well, it sets the stage for our overview today as we come to our next book of the Bible that we are going to work through week by week by the grace of God. And this book is a doozy. Hebrews. It's not a coffee shop. I mean, it is, but that's not what we're doing here. This book is a doozy in that it's fairly long, unlike the other short epistles that we've done recently. Some have been three, four, maybe even five or six chapters. This book has 13 chapters. But that's not really what makes it big. The size of it's not really what makes it big. The theology in these 13 chapters is thick, dense, and powerful. Now, y'all know me. Whatever book we're in is my favorite book or the best book or a better book than the other books, whatever. Um, But I, I really don't believe that there is a book in the Bible that has more potency than this one. Romans is probably as potent and packed, but I don't think you could put one in front of the other as far as that, because I don't know if one is better, let's say it that way. R.C. Sproul said that if he could pick one book of the Bible to have, read, and study if he was in jail for the rest of his life, it would be Hebrews. And he said, people say, well, I'm surprised you wouldn't say Romans. He's like, oh, I know what's in Romans. I wouldn't need that one. (laughs) So he said, give me Hebrews. There is surely a lot going on in this book. Thomas Schreiner says, quote, The value of Hebrews to the church cannot be overestimated. Its theological potency in Revelation, Christology, and eschatology contribute to the church's theological well-being in an age when doctrinal orthodoxy, especially in the areas of Revelation and Christology, is assailed. End of quote. And we are going to take our time working through this book. And as we traverse this great book, we're going to see that it is a book of comparisons. If I had to boil this book down to a tagline or a catchphrase, it could very well be, Jesus is better. Hence the weasel words thing, by the way. That's why we started there. Because as we'll see through this book, you can compare Jesus to whomever or whatever, and he's going to be better. Actually, the words used in the book are things like much superior and more excellent and worthy of more glory and many, many others. But the point of it all is that there is no one nor anything above Jesus in all of the universe. Period. And that sounds, I know it sounds cliche, Jesus is the best, Jesus is better, yeah, Jesus is better than food, and Jesus is better than money, and Jesus is better, but do you know that? Do you really know that there is no one nor anything above Jesus in all of the universe? Do you know in your own life that there is no one nor anything above Jesus in your heart? in your head, in your life. 
And we'll definitely talk more about this today as we work through the book. And again, we're not going to work through the book. Today is an introduction to help prepare you for the the trek that we're about to set out on. But know that Jesus is not going to be presented as the best among a small sampling or a hand-picked lackluster crew. Nope, He's going to be shown and seen as better than anyone or anything else. So... As we we do with most books that we start into, we want to take a look at the author of this book. And Steve read the first four verses of the book, and if you go from that, and actually if you go from the rest of the book, we don't have a clue who wrote this book. We don't know. Some of you are like, well, I know it was. Don't, Don't do that, okay? Nowhere in this book does the writer say who they are. Nowhere. The only identifiers that we have in the whole book are at the end of chapter 13, right at the end of the letter. And again, this is what it says. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. You're like, well, that don't tell me who wrote it. Exactly. The writer says, I. And the writer says that our brother Timothy has been released. So we know it wasn't Timothy. With whom I shall see you if he comes. But he was a a comrade, a friend, a companion of Timothy. And the last tidbit is that those who come from Italy send you greetings. So they are I. They know Timothy and may travel with Timothy if Timothy comes soon. And whoever wrote this book isn't in Italy at the moment because there are people who came from Italy to where they were. So it's not Timothy, and they're not Italian. So that pretty much breaks it down so we know who it is, right? No, right? We don't have a clue. We just don't know. Now, I came across a couple of guys, and these are my favorite guys. And please, I'm not making fun of these men. Please don't take it as that. If it comes across as that, I don't mean it. These guys have figured out who wrote this book. Alright. He's got a chart. This guy's got a better chart. And these guys say they can tell you who wrote the book of Hebrews. They're wrong. They can't. They can't tell you who wrote this book. They cannot do it. Because it doesn't say who wrote this book. And I don't want to make it, again, seem like I'm poking fun at these guys. It's not my goal. I'm just pointing out that if we use the text, which is what we should do, to figure out who wrote this letter, we can't know. And some of you, maybe you've never heard of this being an issue, or, but, but this, is, this is, some people will die on the hill of they know who wrote Hebrews because of this and this and this and this and this. And God bless you. I'm not going to divide over it. But we, we can't know. They don't identify themselves in the letter. And so we're not going to spend a lot of time trying to figure out who wrote it. Is the writer trying to remain anonymous? Would the recipients know who it was? Again, we, still, we don't even know that for sure. Maybe the envelope that it got sent in got thrown away, and so that's why it's a joke. Y'all. So y'all laugh at the stuff that's not funny, and you don't laugh at the stuff that's supposed to be funny. Point is this: we just don't know who wrote it, 
and be careful of people who say they know and be careful of the desire to know what God hasn't shown us. That's important. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us. Focus on the things that are revealed and one thing that is not as revealed in the Scriptures who wrote this book. You're free to have your opinions and that's fine. But the Scripture itself does not tell us so we don't know. But I will not say it doesn't matter who wrote it. That's a little tricky, right? It matters greatly who wrote it. You're like, well, you said we can't know. Right. We have to know that whoever did write this book had access to the apostolic teaching and that what they were writing is in line with that teaching. Well, providentially, we can know that from the text. The only person specifically mentioned in the letter is whom? Who did we just see? Timothy. Do we know who Timothy is? Does, does the Bible mention Timothy anywhere else? Yeah. We know who Timothy is. He was the primary disciple of whom? A guy named, starts with Paul, rhymes with Saul. Yeah, Paul. Timothy was the, the primary disciple of the Apostle Paul. Now note that appellation, there's that word again, I said that last week. For this man named Paul, what was he? Starts with an A, rhymes with shmanasal. <laughs> Paul was an apostle. Paul, who received direct revelation from Jesus himself, he says, and then presented that revelation to the other apostles who themselves had been discipled by Jesus directly for the last years of Jesus' life. And those apostles said that what Paul was given was indeed in line with the true teaching, the commands of Jesus that they too were passing down. So this letter, if taken not only for what it teaches, but also taken for whoever wrote it, though we don't know who it is... This letter is in line with and clearly in the realm of apostolic teaching. And there are many books that were excluded from our canon that couldn't be identified as having been written by somebody who was directly in line with the apostolic authority. That's why they're not in your Bible. This book, however, is in line with apostolic authority. We see Timothy mentioned. That's not by mistake. It's almost like it's providence. And many people would postulate that this letter could have been written by Paul or Luke or one of the other biblical writers citing styles, the style of the writing, phrasing and such. Others take guesses like Apollos or Barnabas. Some even say it could have been Junia, a lady mentioned in Romans 16 in Paul's lists of say hey to folks. But a lot of those same people would say Junia was an apostle, which the Bible does not teach anywhere either. All being said, we don't know who exactly wrote this book, but we do know that they were in the line of apostolic authority and wrote only that which agreed with the apostolic teaching and doctrine. Otherwise, this book would not be in our Bibles. And I do just love the fact that Timothy's mentioned. It's like a little crumb that was dropped that kind of marks the way for us so that we, 2,000 years later, can know that this book is legitimately in the line of apostolic authority. It's a tiny detail that has huge implications for the authenticity and the authority of this book. So, we don't know exactly who wrote it, but okay, recipients. That when you're looking at the letter, you want to know who wrote it and who's it to. Well, again, that's right, we don't know. 
There is no Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus type of intro or outro. The intro, which Steve read this morning, just starts with Jesus as the theme that rings through the whole book. And at the end, we only have the stuff about Timothy and those who come from Italy markers to go on, which really isn't much. The name, book or epistle to the Hebrews, now that's something, but where did that come from? That title wasn't on the original parchment. They didn't scribble epistle to the Hebrews to be included in the Holy Scriptures once it's finished. They didn't do that, right? It actually wasn't applied to the book until the late 2nd century, according to most commentators that I saw. And that tells us something about the recipients, the fact that it's called the Epistle to the Hebrews as early as the 2nd century. It would seem, just from that title that was added later, that this book was written to Jewish believers to help them along in their faith. Now that word Hebrew, what's it mean? Again, get out of get out coffee out of your mind. That's not what we're talking about. The word Hebrew first shows up in the Bible in Genesis 14, 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. That's the first time we see that word Hebrew in the Bible. Abram, who would come to be known as Abraham, had come to the land we now call Israel from across the desert, from a place called Ur. I think somebody didn't know what to call that place, and they're like, Ur, um, they're like, okay, that works. Let's go with that. Ur. God had appeared to this Abram and told him to go to the place that I will show you. Now we have, in, we have Abraham in mind and we think this giant of faith, this great father of the nation of Israel, but this is just a guy worshiping the moon somewhere out in the desert. And God shows up and says, go to where I tell you to go. And Abram's like, okay. And he goes. So Abram crossed the desert crossed some rivers, and ended up in what would become the promised land for the Jewish people who would descend from his body. And it turns out that the word Hebrew literally means one that has traversed. I found this on the website oneforisrael.org. I cannot say, yeah, go there and check this out. I didn't dig deep. I just found this. So that's not an endorsement of this website or a condemnation. I don't know. But this, this was incredibly interesting. What is a Hebrew? The word Hebrew in the Hebrew language is transliterated in our languages. I-V-R-I-E. Ivri. The root letters are used to mean crossover or pass through. Today in Israel, the website goes on to say, we can use the word to talk about moving houses, transgressing laws, going through some difficulties, crossing the road, crossing over a river, and so on. Traversing, passing, or crossing over, essentially. In the Bible, they say, it seems to have primarily referred to those who traversed rivers. The symbolic meaning of this should not be lost on those of us who love the Word of God. End of quote. Now watch this. That same website points to Joshua's words in Joshua 24, 2-15. This is when Joshua is getting ready to commend the, the Israelites, the Hebrews, to cross the river. Okay? Check this out and and note the mentions of crossing or beyond or whatever. Watch this. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river 
and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan, crossing the river there. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you. The two kings of the Amorites, it was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now therefore... Fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And if you look through all that, there are so many mentions of the descendants of Abraham crossing, coming out of, going from here to there, and therefore they came to be known as Hebrews, being commonly called that by themselves and those not of their lineage. So, for the title to be put to this letter in the second century, that would imply that this book was written primarily to a Jewish audience. And these Hebrew people must have followed, came out of, The word church is ecclesia, which means to be called out of, the called out assembly. And they followed Jesus, the rabbi Jesus, as the way, the truth, and the life. And the author speaks, the author of Hebrews speaks to them specifically to help them continue this crossing, this coming out, and to build them up. That, coupled with the fact that there are a multitude of Old Testament references throughout this book, When we get into it, you'll see that. We're going to be referencing the Old Testament a lot. The fact that he mentions the Old Testament so so much makes it likely that the audience was primarily Jewish or Hebrew. Now, regarding these Old Testament references, Stephen Vorwindi, who was the lecturer in New Testament at the Reformed Theological College in Geelong, Australia, says this regarding the Old Testament references. There are 40 of them in these 13 chapters. When it comes to the sheer number of Old Testament quotations in the New Testament epistles, Hebrews is second only to Romans, which has 63 quotes. But, shorter than Romans, oh, sorry, I skipped a line, but when it comes to the population density of quotations, Hebrews is well in front. Not only is it shorter than Romans, overall, but its quotations are generally longer. In the original, the Hebrews quotes total 737 words, which amount to about 15% of its complete content. 
He goes on to say, for Romans, on the other hand, the quotes come to only 639 words, or about 9% of the total. So, the population density of Old Testament quotes in Hebrews is greater than any other book of the New Testament. The quotes make up a significant proportion of the epistle. Now, why am I saying that? I'm saying that because this book is saturated with the Old Testament. And that Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament was considered the scriptures of the Jewish people. That makes the Hebrews title even more applicable. So while we don't know who or where these people are or where they came from, we can know their roots, their background, almost certainly. One other thing that we can know from the book itself is about, about the recipients is that they were facing persecution at the time of the writing. Hebrews 10, 32-39 shows this pretty clearly. The writer says to the recipients, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere and preserve their soul. Sorry. This is a pretty big part of the reason for the whole letter. That's why I bring that up here. Um, R.C. Sproul also talks about that while there were many martyrs and heroes facing persecution in the early church, and we talk about it so romantically, the blood of the martyrs was the rain that brought forth the fruit of the Word of God in the first century, and God blessed those first century martyrs. And all that's true, but there were also a large number of people falling away from the faith because of this persecution. It's called the first century lapse, L-A-P-S-E-E. And it's marked, it's marked, it's noted. People were falling away from the faith in large numbers, mostly due to the early stages of these persecutions. We saw imprisonment, we saw the plundering of their property. So the writer of Hebrews, listen, this is very important to understand this letter. The writer of Hebrews is literally preaching an apologetic message calling on his mostly Jewish readers to not fall away, to not lose heart even in the midst of these trials and hardships because ultimately Jesus is better. Jesus is worth it, whatever you have to go through. And it's important to see and understand that the most convincing argument for all of this is simply Jesus. The argument for persevering is Jesus. The argument for enduring suffering is Jesus. And that argument is really the whole of the book. The structure of the book literally revolves around showing Jesus. We read it this morning. Steve read it this morning. First, it shows Jesus as God Himself. He's the exact imprint. He's the radiance of His glory. And that's a huge one. Now, y'all pray for me because i got to preach that next week. I mean, great day. What do you do with that passage? Y'all just give me 60 minutes to preach. I mean, you selfish. Anyway, so that's how the, the so the argument revolves around Jesus, and first that Jesus is God Himself, and then throughout throughout the book, Jesus is compared to angels, 
He's compared to the law. He's compared to Moses. He's compared to the promised land, the priesthood, the sacrificial system, and the past covenants of God. And how does He come out? He's better. The writer of the book shows us Jesus as the Son of God. He shows us Jesus as the great high priest. He shows us Jesus as the King of God's forever kingdom. And the major pattern all through the book is the superiority of the person and work of Jesus to bring to fulfillment and overflow the narrative of the Old Testament. This is consistent with the words of Jesus Himself who said to the Jews, the scribes and the Pharisees of His day, you search the Scriptures, the Old Testament, because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about Me. Jesus said the whole Old Testament is about Me. And the writer of Hebrews would agree. Jesus says, and the writer of Hebrews elaborates on the truth, that all of the Old Testament, the purpose of the Old Covenant, was to point to the Messiah who was to come and bring it all to completion, and that that Messiah is Jesus. This is also consistent with the work of many early Jewish followers of Jesus, which we see in Acts 18 in the ministry of Apollos. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately that the things concerning Je- accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. Now watch this. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Apollos was reaching out to the Jewish community knowing that they were looking for the long-promised, long-awaited Messiah and Apollos wanted to show them that what they were looking for was fully realized in Jesus. By the way, this is why some people think Apollos wrote this letter of Hebrews due to his close contact with the apostles and the early church and his eloquence and competency in the scriptures. But we don't know that. Hebrews shows both of these things for sure. But again, no way of knowing. But we do know that Hebrews, like the ministry of Apollos that we just saw in Acts, is centered on the perfect work of Jesus to embody and fulfill all the Old Testament references it uses. Let me put a quick pin in this. The Old Testament is so very important to your faith. We'll move on now. Another feature that needs addressed and given the overview and flow and structure of this book is the presence of what many call the warning passages that are clear and prevalent throughout the book. There are five major warnings in the book. The passages are chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, 3, 7 to 4, 13, 5, 11 to 6, 12, chapter 10, verses 19 to 39, and chapter 12, verses 14 to 29. Now that's a big chunk of this book. And these passages address such dangers as drifting, Falling away, losing your hope, being sluggish, sinning, throwing away your confidence, bitterness, sexual immorality, refusing Him who is speaking, rejecting the warning from heaven and the coming judgment and many more. And some of these passages are really tough to interpret if they are taken out of context. 
And if they are used to scare people. And I would wager that many of us grew up in church cultures where they use some of these warning passages to scare the junk out of us. And make us just so sure, unsure that we were saved or not. Scared to death. Because Hebrews says... And you're like, oh shoot, it does. Hopefully, you know that's not what we're going to do. First of all, hopefully you know we're not going to take these things out of context. Okay? And I guess people have used these warning passages to scare people as long as this book has been written. But I love what the folks at the Bible Project had to say about these passages. I love this. They say that the warning passages are there not to make you afraid, but to show that Jesus is the best option in following and believing when you are afraid. That's so important. (laughs) The answer to all of these problems, the falling away, the, the worry, the fear, the anxiety that Todd mentioned this morning... The security in the midst of all of these uncertainties is to do what the familiar beginning of chapter 12 of Hebrews calls us to do. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And here it is, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And this comes out of chapter 11, which is the well-known and oft-quoted Hall of Faith, giving us examples of those who lived by faith in the God of the Old Testament, who showed Himself in the person of Jesus in the New Testament. Follow their example, chapters 11 to 13 say, and fix your eyes on Jesus as the perfect example of faithfulness in the face of suffering and persecution. Jesus is both our example and our power if we are to be counted among the faithful and run our race well. Another thing I'd like to go over today is the format of this book. The writer says at the end of the book in in chapter 13, verse 22, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. This guy had to be a preacher. Because he writes a 13-chapter book and he says, I just wrote briefly to you guys. I mean, come on. Um, Thomas Schreiner again says about this verse, which I think is important, especially when considering the format here. Quote, The phrase, word of exhortation, occurs only one other place in the New Testament in Acts 13.15 where the synagogue leaders in Pisidian Antioch invite Paul to address the congregation with a, quote, word of exhortation. One commentator Schreiner says, stated that the word appears to have been an idiomatic designation for the homily or edifying discourse that followed the public reading for the designated portions of Scripture in the Hellenistic synagogues, end of quote. So what would happen is, and you you remember Jesus comes to the synagogue and, and He opens up the scroll to the place where they were and He reads it, and then what would happen is, wherever they were in the Scriptures, the person who delivered the message, the homily, would start there and say something about that passage. Okay, that's how the synagogue life worked. And so what Schreiner is saying here and what these other commentators are saying is that since this phrase was used, this letter, we call it a letter, this book seems to be a sermon. 
basically. More like a sermon than it is a letter. And that's important to note because even though it was written from one man to a group of people, it's not just personal correspondence. It's not Paul to Timothy. It's more along the lines of a didactic teaching with a particular goal in mind. It's not a brain dump. It's not, hey, let me get this off my head. There's a few things I wanted to tell y'all. He's like, I want to tell y'all one thing. And I'm going to take 13 chapters to tell you this one thing. And let me tell you what, this book is incredibly structured. It is laid out so specifically and it outlines almost perfectly. To me. I mean, it probably does outline perfectly. I just don't see how... It's almost like the Holy Spirit was in control of this or something. Whoever wrote it really seems to be a well-trained preacher. Let me just say it that way. So instead of reading an interpersonal private letter, let's think of this more as a theological treatise as we go through it. Okay? So that's the format. One more aspect to take into consideration as we wrap up this introduction and this survey of this wonderful book. Listen, this is... Something I've missed for most of my adult life. I've heard it, I've said it, and I've missed it. Okay. It is very, very important to explore the culture that these recipients were living in as they received this book and that the author lived in as they wrote this book. So both the Jews as a people group and the Romans which these people that are receiving this letter are Roman Jews. Okay, so they're living kind of in a dual culture. Both the Jews and the Romans lived in what is known as an honor-shame culture. And we briefly touched on this in 2 Peter, saying that Peter would not stand by and let false teachers make a mockery of the true gospel without responding in a strong way. So a lot of what Peter says sounds almost mean, right? So they're going to dissolve when God burns everything up. They're like, oh my gosh. You can't say that, Peter. He's like, but I did. So keep that in mind. The recipients of the book of Hebrews would have been caught in the crosshairs of both the Jewish and the Roman cultures, which would have both been vying for their attention and affection, especially in the realm of honor. And the mode of that vying is through appealing to their honor and shame mentalities. Now let me say this, I've said this many times before in this pulpit and in other places, we have lost the concept of shame in our culture. Nothing's shameful anymore. People don't blush about anything. If you don't believe me, go to Facebook for five minutes. We've lost the concept of shame and in so doing, we've lost the concept of honor as well. These people lived in the midst of it. It was the air that they breathed. Michael Gorman helps explain this when he says the following, quote, Simply defined, honor and shame refer to the ongoing attribution or loss of esteem by one's peers, or one's family, one's social class, one's city, and so on. So think of a collective group. He goes on to say, In Roman society... This respect was based primarily on such things as wealth, education, rhetorical skill, family pedigree, and political connections. These were the culture's status indicators. In this context, and he goes on to say, and this is so, this is so important, in this context, the phrase self-esteem, 
would be conceived of as a ridiculous oxymoron. The only esteem one has is bestowed by the, not by the self, but by the group. I'm going to read that again. The only esteem one has is bestowed by the self, not, not by the self, but by the group. In this environment, he finishes, peer pressure is not negative or something to avoid, but is viewed as appropriate and welcome. Now, when you hear the phrase peer pressure, you go, ooh, oh, don't succumb to peer pressure. As parents, how many times have you said that to your kids? Don't, don't give yourself to peer pressure. That's because we live in a very self-actualization type of society. Self-determination. It's all about me. The biggest uh, grouping, the biggest selling grouping of books in bookstores is what? Self-help. These people knew nothing of self-esteem. They knew nothing of self-help and that was a good thing. Because they found their definition. They found their reality. They found their truth in the context of the group. Sounds almost biblical, doesn't it? Peer pressure is not negative or something to avoid, but is viewed as appropriate and welcome. Okay, so what's this mean for this letter and what's it mean for us? Well, with an emphasis on people standing firm or falling away, the battle is all about what peer pressure, what group will these recipients choose? Will they bow to the pressure from the worldly crowd and let them define what honor is, the worldly crowd? Or will they look to Jesus and honor Him and stand strong in His grace and for His glory? Will they see that the honor of Jesus is better than the honor of men? The author is pointing to Jesus as the epitome of honor and appealing to these readers to not fall away from Him in a collective peer pressure way. We are encouraging you. We are calling on you to find your identity with us in the honor of Jesus. That puts a brighter light on another well-known verse from this letter. Hebrews 10, 23-25. Let us hold fast. And no, look, I can do this. I forgot. Oh, why is it not working? Oh, because it's not using Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see the peer pressure here? And again, get out of your mind, peer pressure bad. Peer pressure good. Peer pressure good. Peer pressure good. Peer pressure is good in light of this letter. You're like, well, you may say that, but I don't believe it. Peer pressure is good. It's not seen as negative in that culture like it is in ours. And we've got to read the whole Bible. The whole Bible in light of this honor-shame culture. Because I'm telling you what, so many of the attacks and and, and the attempts to show the Bible as mean-hearted is because of this very thing. 
Well, Paul was mean-hearted. He was mean-spirited. He said mean things to people. Well, he said it as positive peer pressure to encourage people to not be different, to not, not lose heart, not to neglect to meet together, trying to encourage people, trying to hold fast the confession of our hope, how to stir one another up. Let us consider how to do that. So our individualistic society would say, well, if I don't want to come to church, I shouldn't have to. The positive peer pressure says, we're at church, you should be here. And add to that the fact that all of this comes from God. That's a whole new light on the positive peer pressure as well. It's not us. It's the Word of God. Let us consider not neglecting to meet together, encouraging one another. That quote from Michael Gorman had said that peer pressure was viewed as appropriate and welcome. And the writer of Hebrews is working to make sure that that peer pressure is lovingly and consistently applied. As should we, by the way. Let us hold fast the confession of our faith. Let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, encouraging one another. So it's important that we read and interpret this passage and the whole letter and the whole Bible Remembering this honor-shame paradigm. And it does literally, I don't want to sound over-dramatic, it literally changes everything in the Scripture to see it rightly. It provides a lot of good insight into both the writer's motivation and the recipient's perception of what's being said to them. So that's pretty much for the introduction after 45 minutes. Sorry. I've written to you briefly. Okay. So let me just pick out, I've got three quick application points from what we've seen today. Now, let me say this, as far as application goes, you're going to hear a lot of application points repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated through this book. Hopefully you don't just see that as me not being original. I don't want to be original. I want to be biblically faithful. So if one week the application points are this, this, and this, and the following week they're this, this, and this, oh well. Because this book is so consistent with its message. So, three B's for application today. Um, in light of what we've seen today and also to look forward as we go into this letter for who knows how long. Um, we may graduate some people and who knows, toddlers become children. I don't know how long. <laughs> three B's, sorry. Before, betray, and better. Before, betray, and better. The application for before is that I want us as a people, as, as a church, as a group of people, to really invest ourselves in the Old Testament as we work through this letter. Okay? What was written before this letter. That's why the application is before. Again, I think it said 40 Old Testament references in this letter. What I would love for us to do is to take those Old Testament references that are brought up on Sunday and spend the week looking back at them. Now, I'll talk about them. We'll look into them in the message. But I want you to get the context. I want you to get the full meaning of this reference because, again, it's just a reference pulled out. I want you to go back. I want us to go back. I want to go back through whatever Old Testament uh, passages were brought up and I want to soak in them so that I might understand Hebrews a little better that I might understand this honor-shame culture a little better, that I might understand the context of the letter all the more. Okay? 
I don't have to name names or mention specifics. There are so many people who say that the Old Testament doesn't matter to our faith. And Jesus said, it is they that speak of me. Don't give up on the Old Testament. It's a little tough sometimes, right? Seems a little harsh. We see a God there, an image of a God that we're like, ooh, yeesh, this guy's angry, right? It's a little bit scary. Don't miss that. Don't miss the glory of the cross in light of the wrath of God shown in the Old Testament. Don't, don't, don't unyoke yourself from the Old Testament. Soak in it as we move through uh, this book. So that's before. Second application point is betray. One of the major themes, thoughts, and things addressed in this letter is the danger of falling away. And it was happening by great numbers in the time of the writing of this letter. Well, guess what's still happening today? Anybody unnerved, upset about the number of high-profile Christians who are falling away? Deconstructing? Let me tell you what, that word deconstructing has become a heroic word in our culture. I don't believe the Bible anymore. I deconstructed my faith. And people go, good for you. You do you. You come to your own truth. You believe what you should believe. You follow your heart. And let me tell you what, when you concoct your own truth, when you follow your own heart, you are in serious danger of falling away. I would almost guarantee you will fall away. If you construct your own truth, believe your own beliefs, follow your own heart. And that's exactly what was going on here. These people that were falling away were choosing the honor of the culture. They were choosing the honor of the the ruling class and saying, I want to be a part of that. And so all this Jesus stuff, heck, I can't even sell my goods in the marketplace if I choose this Jesus stuff. Listen, we're there, folks. We're there. It's getting to the point that if you confess Christ, if you confess that you believe the Scriptures as the only authoritative Word of God, you're going to get canceled. Try to sell something. When people say, oh no, no, that that dude's been canceled. He's one of those Jesus people. So especially pertinent in our day that we are aware, this could have been beware also, the application point could have been beware of betraying, beware of falling away. Now I say that not to scare you. In light of what we talked about earlier, I say that to say, keep your eyes on Jesus to keep from betraying Him. Judas got his eyes on silver instead of on Jesus, and he betrayed Jesus. We can get our eyes on the culture. We can get our eyes on the stars of our day. And when we do that, we run the risk of betraying Jesus. We run the risk of falling away. So this book is so incredibly pertinent in our day. Whose honor are you going to adhere to? The cultures, your own? Don't do that. Choose the honor of Jesus. Don't betray the honor of Jesus.
And we'll see that all through the book. And, and find ways to do that. And again, ultimately, the main way that we keep from falling away, the main outcome of seeing this focus on the Old Testament is that we understand that Jesus is better. Which is the final application point. Before, betray, and better. The incomparable Christ. No one compares. Nothing compares. And so this writer is going to turn our attention to Jesus. And he's going to show Jesus as better. I would love for it to be a normal prayer of mine. Father, help me to see Jesus as better. As the sin that calls out my name. As the better than the culture that's screaming at me. Better than money, which Todd talked about this morning. Better than the thorns and the thistles. Better than the anxieties. Better than, better than, better than, better than, better than. Jesus is better. And we sing the song, more than my trials, more than my... I don't know what all it says, but the answer to the thing is Jesus is better. And then the prayer, make my heart believe. Second Corinthians 11.3, I don't have this up there, I added it late. Well, shoot, I had it up. There it is. Paul says to the Corinthians, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Let me read that again. But I'm afraid, as was the writer of Hebrews, that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. I hope that this sermon to the Hebrews points us to a simple, pure devotion to the person of Jesus and that we see Him as better. I want to just read the words of this song as we finish this morning. For the Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. We can always run to Jesus. Jesus, strong and kind. But the Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. We can always run to Jesus. Jesus, strong and kind. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. And our main chorus, the main repetitive strain that we want to keep coming back to is this. Father, thank You for Jesus. Thank You for His perfect work. Thank You that He was born of a virgin. Born as man and as God. The Son of God and the Son of Man. Thank You that He lived a perfect life in which He never sinned, in which He fulfilled Your law perfectly. And then He took that perfect life and He laid it down on a cross to shed His blood so that the penalty for the sins of Your people could be paid. We can always run to Jesus. And God, I pray that this morning, whether we know You or we don't know You, that we would run to Jesus and see Him as better now. And that for all eternity, our refrain might be that Jesus is better. 
Help us by the power of Your Spirit. Strengthen us with power through Your Holy Spirit in the inner person that our communion might be with Jesus. That we might be called out, the called out assembly, called out of the world, called out of the culture, and into Your very presence where Jesus is King. And may we live as such to Your glory and for our good and for the good of other people. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? This is going to come from the book of Hebrews. Imagine it. It's almost like I meant to do that. Now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, who is better, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, You're dismissed, but stay and eat with us if you can. And men, up here for about five minutes.